Welcome to the Felon File Podcast. A review of historical true crime in the Appalachian Mountains and elsewhere. Hosted by Scott Lunsford, retired police detective, author, and researcher. Thank you, Victoria, for opening up another episode of Felon File. We hope that you guys tuning in to listen have had a pretty good uh, holiday got everything you wanted from Santa Claus before he got busted like we spoke earlier about his bank robbery exploits in the state of Texas you can go back to listen to the previous podcast and find out a little bit about that if you so wish to today's story on felon file we're going to talk about some breakouts what is it about stories of individuals fighting for their freedom that really interests us and attracts our attention so much? In the many different ways of fighting for your freedom, is the escaped prisoner the ultimate freedom fighter and underdog? Well, I guess it depends on how you look at it. Do we feel at times we're just a hair's breadth away from being in those same shoes? We know it's a fact that some people have been found guilty of a very serious crime since society has removed their freedom, all in the name of punishment and the safety of the community. Unfortunately, another fact is that sometimes society has gotten it wrong, and innocent men and women have had that freedom removed and they've been locked up. I guess that's why people love a good escape story. In the movies, Hollywood has given us many. Of course, The Great Escape, World War II movie, Cool Hand Luke, Papillon, 1973 movie, The Shawshank Redemption from 1994, a 1932 classic, I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang. And of course, we can't forget Brother Where Art Thou, The Defiant Ones, and one of my favorite at least from a book perspective, The Count of Monte Cristo. The advent of escape rooms and attractions also allows everyone to take part in these kind of escape fantasies that they might have. Not too long ago, for example, I was transporting an inmate from the county jail to Central Prison in Raleigh. School was out and they needed somebody for transportation. So I went ahead and agreed to take him up. Ended up prisoner that I was transporting to do some time in Raleigh from my home county I went to high school with a guy so we had a good conversation going down there ever since high school the man has pretty much spent majority of his time behind bars of some sort either state-wise in a state prison or in the county lockup or in various county lockups as far as that goes now from the secure cage in the back seat of the patrol vehicle, as we were driving to Raleigh, he saw a sign along the highway advertising an escape room business. And he was curious about this and inquired about what it was and was it a business and so on. Well, I explained it to him and he did listen to my explanation and we had a bit of a conversation about the concept of escape rooms. His one comment from his point of view though was, People are basically nut. Of course, he used a little stronger adjectives 
in descriptive terms than I did. Now that brings us to our Shade of Blue story for today. Now like most places in the world, the criminal annals of Buncombe County in western North Carolina are repleasant with sensational incidents and excitement. I to quote Chico Marx as playing the character uh, Signor Emmanuel Ravioli in the Animal Crackers movie, a classic movie. Ravioli says, well look, all you got to do is open the door, step outside, and there you are. Now the same can be said for the good guys and the bad guys. You wake up every day, go outside, and bango, there you are. Unless, and that applies to if you're locked up in prison too. It's not surprising that prisoners or their friends have made many attempts in history to thwart the process of the law by liberating jail defendants awaiting trial who were being held or being moved to state facilities to serve their time. Of course, if you're waiting for the ultimate punishment or execution for a capital offense, then basically, I guess, what have you got to lose? Jail facilities and the ways of incarcerating people have steadily changed over the years in the Blue Ridge Mountains, as just like everywhere else. And Western North Carolina, again, is no exception. From the stocks that used to be in the town square of Morristown, the city of Asheville's former name, to the more modern facilities that were, at the times, the best that money could buy. The Buncombe County Jail and its many constructions, it has at times been full of criminals, both state and federal, some of who are men of means and influence, men who could afford outside help to try to make an escape or at least make it a matter of more than a mere possibility that an escape attempt would be tried. Now today's Shade of Blue story is about a famous escape from one of the previous jails in Buncombe County. Now going back to a local newspaper of August 31st, 1906, to quote them, the present jail has long been notoriously inadequate to its demands. It is only a short time before a new jail will be an imperative necessity. Now at that time the building in the jail facility was located on Eagle Street, a place we called The Block when I was a police officer in Asheville, and a location called Hell's Acre many years before that. The original jail there on Eagle Street was designed to house 36 inmates, and that was it. However, there was some documentation showing that it has been used to hold up to 108 prisoners at one time. That's a lot of people. In November of that year, a grand jury was called to investigate and review the jail. This is actually part of a grand jury's job in the state of North Carolina. Their observations and recommendations were to the point. Buncombe County needed a new jail. In addition to overcrowding and lack of disinfecting facilities, unquote, it made it impossible to keep out vermin, the bugs and the rats that cause and spread germs and diseases. And these could actually end up being spread to the community. It has happened in the past and I'm sure it will happen in the future. The county wanted to build the new jail 
next to the courthouse built in 1903. Now that was a bit of a problem, one that even comes up today, or has come up today. The late George Willis Pack, who deeded the land to the county in 1901, the place where Vance Monument used to be until the city of Asheville decided to take it down, his agreement strictly forbidden the construction of a jailhouse, in particular on that four-acre plot that the Pack family or that George Pack had given to the city of Asheville. In February of 1907, that clause was overlooked, but as the publicity and the newspapers published the information, the family of Patton brought it back to the commissioner's attention and that in the agreement, if they violated the agreements to what goes there at that location, the property reverts back to the Penn family. The same is said for Pritchard Park. If something other than a park is there, or the city tries to sell either pieces of property, Pack Square or Pritchard Park, they revert back to the original families. And of course that made it necessary to find another place to put the jail. Months later a new site was found and selected on Marjorie Street. Pretty much it was at the rear of the older jail facility, but not in Pack Square. Construction began in 1907 and it looks like it ran them about thirty to forty thousand dollars to construct the jail. Now remember, this is 1907 money, so you're looking at 800000 to a million dollars in today's value. The facility was to be the most modern and up-to-date lockup at the time anywhere in the state. The new jail was four stories high. It had cells, or what they call cages, as they were referred to and all the modern convenience that were found in the jails then and actually today as well. Each floor had a large corridor, spacious halls equipped with modern plumbing facilities making sanitation an essential part of the design of the building, floors of concrete and high ceilings for ventilation. There was also one device installed in the jail that unfortunately or fortunately depending on your perspective that was not to be needed. It was considered real high-tech and modern at the time, but the device became obsolete before the jail opened due to state law changes and the invention of the electric chair. North Carolina decided that executions from 1908 would be handled by the state and not on a local level. As a result, all individuals executed were taken to Raleigh, the state capital. The device made obsolete was a dead drop. A hanging chute was built into the building that was adjustable for the size and mass of the executed prisoner. Prisoners could be executed in this manner without concern of public interference because the entire area was secure. Basically, it was a laundry chute that they hung a noose in. The door on the floor was from the third to the second floor and the opening was about three feet square. Plus it provided trap doors that were arranged to open and shut as the executioner may desire. 
depending on, again, the mass and the weight of the person being executed. And like I said, that jail was located on Marjorie Street. At least the principal entrance is on that street. And the fenced jail yard extended some 200 feet towards Eagle Street. Now the foundation of this old jail, with this basement still intact, is still standing in the city of Asheville, downtown, and is used for storage space today. Or at least the foundation is. One of the main reasons for the construction of the new jail that opened in 1908 was an incident that occurred in the summer of 1886 in the previous jail, built in 1880, and quickly outgrown by the community. Several individuals were being held after being convicted or were about to be tried for murder in various counties of western North Carolina. And the Buncombe County Jail was assumed to be the most secure facility to keep them in. The press had called the jail at that time the Buncombe Bastille. It was supposed to be the most secure and escape-proof place in the state. Families and friends in adjoining communities who might plan to help an escape or aid in an escape would have to travel from their home county to Buncombe County to visit or plan an escape attempt. Not to mention the fact that Buncombe County charged the other counties basically rent for space in their jail. Now at that time in 1886 the Buncombe Jail held three prisoners in particular on commitments from other counties for the charge of murder. At least two were being held for murders committed in Buncombe County. One prisoner in the group was Jay Sluter for a murder committed on May 11, 1851, almost 10 years before. Another gentleman by the name of O.M. York was another offender from Buncombe County. He was also being held on a murder charge, but he was waiting for a grand jury to convene to decide if he was going to Superior Court. The three prisoners that were being held for murder that were committed in other counties were Mr. K.W. Ray, Whitestall A. Anderson, who was 26 years old, and a Mr. T. Calloway. Anderson had been convicted by his great-uncle, a judge whose brother he'd actually been named after, along with his 41-year-old cousin, Edward W. Ray. Ray was, con was convicted of two homicide counts. Anderson and Ray were also brothers-in-law. They had each married a daughter of Jacob Weaver Bowman, who was a very prominent judge at that time in their home county. Now, it's unknown how the two men communicated with friends on the outside. Still, they likely had, based on later court testimony. The other prisoner, Charles York, on his arrest, he had been living with his brother, John York, of Cooper Station, North Carolina. John was 29 and married with children. He had invited his younger brother, Charles, to live with him and his wife. John also allowed Charles to work with him in his lumber business. John and Charles had both been made fatherless during the Civil War. 
Their father was a member of the 60th Regiment of North Carolina Troops and died at Chattanooga when John was seven and Charles was five. Over 650,000 men died in the Civil War, approximately. The widespread loss of fathers greatly impacted that generation and several generations to come. And it's theorized that the trauma of the war and growing up with no access to education in the impoverished post-Civil War Southern Appalachia contributed to the widespread addiction to alcohol and the high crime rate and the low education rate. Sadly, the two brothers were both uh, alcoholics. On a Thursday afternoon in May of 1885, John and Charles were returning home from a trip to Asheville where they had made a lumber delivery. The two were taking the wagon and oxen home and the conversation turned into an argument. Now with the assistance of the alcohol, the two got off the wagon and led the team while they talked, walked, and argued. An acquaintance who walked with them stayed with them to about five miles of their house and then he took another trail. He said later in court that the two brothers argued the entire trip. Now once they got home, John's wife heard a strange noise, went outside and found her husband on the ground stabbed and bleeding. Tried to get him inside but he died before they could get him inside into a doctor. Their six-year-old son William had witnessed this and course the trauma haunted him for the rest of his life. Younger brother was arrested and in trying to explain what happened he said it was an accident telling everyone that his brother had been whittling with a knife as they walked along and that he had tripped and fallen on the open blade which had pierced his heart thus killing him. Now the coroner's examination told a different story. John had been stabbed in the heart multiple times his coat itself displayed seven slash marks and various cut marks as well. Younger brother Charles faced an appointment with a death chair in Raleigh. Another prisoner, Callaway, was tried by a jury in Mitchell County in the early spring, had been found guilty of murder, and he was to be taken back to Mitchell County where an appeal had happened and he was supposed to be retried. Now, our two main characters in this story are 26-year-old Avery Anderson and 40-year-old Kay Ray. Avery Anderson was a Mitchell County Revenue Officer. He was a law enforcement officer. Anderson had married a young lady by the name of Nora Bowman, the daughter of a lawyer and a judge. Anderson had the reputation as a man who possessed many enemies because he was active in running down moonshiners who, as the newspapers of the day described it, moonshiners were as thick as grasshoppers in Kansas. Now in February 1884, Anderson and his brother-in-law, Ray, were involved in a dispute at the Flat Rock Mine. This later became known as the Mica Mine Massacre in Mitchell County. The land that the mine was on belonged to somebody else. And after changing hands several times, brother-in-law Ray offered Anderson an interest in the mine in exchange for assistance in securing it. Ray and Anderson arrived at the mine and they were met by the guys who were actually working it and claimed to be owners of it. 
And after a fight, one man was shoved down the shaft. Two men were killed. Anderson got into a scuffle on one of the upper levels. And Anderson ended up drawing a pistol and shooting the man he was fighting with. Total of three men were killed there at the time. There were several other men there, and they were able to get away. Ray and Anderson, after the killing, remained on the run for about three weeks from various locations in western North Carolina and eastern Tennessee until they decided they could prove they had acted in self-defense and they turned themselves into their father-in-law, J.W. Bowman, the judge, at the sheriff's office in Marshall. As soon as they were arrested, of course, they were taken over to Buncombe County for safekeeping. Even though the murders had been committed in Mitchell County, the state of North Carolina decided wanted a change of venue and thinking that they could get a better chance at a conviction at another location. That caused the trial to be moved to Caldwell County, where both men were eventually convicted. Ray receiving the death penalty and Anderson receiving 20 years of hard labor. Now because of their status and their friends and associates and other family members, they were both given every consideration possible as prisoners at Buncombe County. They were given liberties at the jail that other prisoners were not allowed to have. Some of the newspapers state that they even had their cells left unlocked sometimes so that they can come and go in the middle of the night staying in the jail of course. At one point though word came of a jailbreak attempt getting ready to happen and the sheriff kind of got worried about it and moved the two prisoners to Henderson County and requested militia assistance from the governor and the governor granted it. If you will remember the podcast we did on Peter Smith, the man who was hung in Marshall, He had been housed in the Buncombe County Jail with Anderson and Ray, but taken to Marshall, North Carolina, to be hung. The Buncombe County Sheriff took him there for the hanging and assisted with the hanging. Now, Peter Smith, as the rope went around his neck, told the Sheriff of Buncombe County that there was going to be a jailbreak, and he said that Anderson and Ray were involved in it. Sheriff, unfortunately, blew off the warning, thinking that he had things under control. Kay and Anderson had the means and the access to commit the escape they had planned and organized. And the incident is often referred to as the Kay and Anderson escape incident. Now, it was on the night of July 3rd that the excitement began. Around 8.30, Sheriff Rich, Sheriff of Buncombe County, began his usual evening rounds checking on his prisoners. First, he visited the secure upper-level cage that housed Anderson, Ray, Saluter, York, Calloway, and Hensley, all charged with or convicted of murder. With the sheriff was Deputy Dan Henderson. When Henderson unlocked the cage door, Rich went in and Henderson held his hand on the levers which opened the cell doors. As soon as he sprung the lever, York, Calloway, and Sluter jumped on Rich and stuck a pistol in his face. Now, how they got a pistol is another good question. 
Ed Ray pointed a pistol through the cell bars at Henderson's chest, warning him, If you move, I will kill you. Terrified, of course, Henderson asked him not to, and Ray said, I'm not going to if you just do as I tell you to and don't move. Anderson reached through the bars, was able to reach the lever since it was moved forward, allowing him to pull it forward more, which opened the doors to the cage. Within minutes, the escapees had opened the main door and confronted Henderson and demanded he surrender his gun. Ray grabbed a hold of Sheriff Rich's 1870 Webley 44 British caliber bulldog pistol. This is the same type of pistol in 1881, President Garfield's assassin in killing the president. The prisoners bound and gagged Rich and tried him to a cell and locked him in one cage. Henderson was secured the same way and locked up in another cage. Anderson grabbed the keys from Henderson and ran downstairs to the first floor to the door leading to the jailer's room where jailer Henderson lived. Anderson handed Henderson's young son the keys through the door's small window and ordered him to unlock it from the outside. Opening the door from the outside was one of their security conditions and nobody could let anybody out because the sheriff had the keys. The boy hearing the strange voice thought something must be wrong and following the orders his father had instilled in him in such a situation, he took off with the keys and ran to his mother. She immediately ran and shut the door at the other end of the hall, and as she was yanking and closed, Anderson hollered out, If you don't unlock this door, we will kill Dan. But she slammed the solid iron door anyway and ran out to raise the alarm. Meanwhile, Jack Lambert, who we haven't spoke about, condemned murderer awaiting his death sentence, who was still locked up within four feet of the escaping prisoners, he watched quietly and very intently, and then later testified in court. While deeply interested to know if they were going to let him out too, he watched. Lambert, confined in the lower story of the cage, next to the side through which the prisoners would force their exit, watched Anderson run to the window after Miss Henderson refused to open the door. Then hearing Mrs. Henderson, the deputy's wife, Shout out the alarm, Anderson went to the east window of the building and waved a lantern back and forth a few times, then left it in the window, apparently signaling somebody. He grabbed a second lantern and went to the west-facing window, where at least a half a dozen friends of his were standing outside. Lambert watched as someone on the outside passed an axe and two more pistols up through the window. People passing along Eagle Street on the south of the building and College Street on the north reported hearing a dull sound, a sound that at first gave the impression someone was beating on the floor. With the axe, Anderson attacked the brick wall from the inside. At the same time, his accomplices, men on the outside, were doing the same thing. Anderson pounded away until the window sash fell out. Ray grabbed up the axe and continued giving his brother-in-law a break, finally opening up a small hole in the wall. Lambert again watched as Anderson ran to the window on the other side of the room, 
and using the lantern signaled to somebody again outside. Ray finished breaking through the wall and Anderson again signaled with a lantern, then threw it onto the floor. Ray went to crawl through the small hole in the wall, but he got stuck about halfway through, and with the help of the people on the outside and with Anderson shoving him from the inside, they were able to jerk him out on the other side, and Anderson passed through without difficulty. Then Calloway and York and Phineas Sluter followed out. Abe Hensley was the last one and was supposed to be the sixth person to get out. But, once outside, Hensley remembered that, oh, I forgot my hat inside. So he decided it was a good idea to crawl back inside the jail and get his hat. And as he did so, he was captured. By then, Colonel Williamson of the local militia and two Asheville men named Will and Gus Reynolds had entered the jail through the main entrance after hearing from the deputy's wife and they caught Henderson snatched him right back up as soon as he come through the hole in the wall. Anderson and Ray's real prominent family including his father-in-law the judge no doubt orchestrated the jailbreak for Anderson and Ray from what was then considered the most secure jail in western North Carolina. Five desperate escapees, presumed to be armed, which they were, were now on the lam, so to speak. The sheriff notified the governor, who authorized the militia being called out. The fire bell rang out the alarm in the city, and basically Asheville small village of Asheville was thrown into a state of excitement. Now as happens in situations, rumors started flowing very quickly that night, people believing that Sheriff Rich had been killed in the jailbreak. Now when word got out that he was still alive, the sentiment and concern for the sheriff quickly turned to blaming the sheriff and his deputy and accusing them of being accessories to the escape. Now immediately, crowd formed up around the jail. State militiamen under Charles Mosley's command sprang into action and the Asheville Light Infantry troops dispersed in all directions looking for the escapees. Fifteen hours later, most of Mosley's troops returned without any luck at all, while the posse run by Sheriff Rich continued throughout the night and into the next day without stopping. Now Anderson had jumped from the prison wall in his escape. He ended up injuring his ankle pretty bad. Still he and Ed continued heading towards the French Broad River. At the banks of the river they hid in the weeds near Pearson's Bridge. A location still identifiable today because there is still a Pearson's Bridge. A detachment of militiamen were stationed at the bridge. So they were kind of worried a little bit about being seen by the militiamen. So they stayed in the water and in the weeds as much as they possibly can. And one newspaper reported that fate intervened in their behalf. And the French Broad River gave off a heavy fog so thick that it swept throughout the valley. Allowing the men to travel unobserved. The darkness was pretty much impenetrable and a lifesaver to the guys crouching near the river. 
They swam and waded for about 15 miles downriver, mainly to cover up their scent from the uh, tracking bloodhounds that they knew were, would be coming. The two pushed themselves on a dawning track through the woods until they reached the Big Ivy River. Anderson and Ray head along the banks of the Big Ivy, and at dawn they hid until nightfall in the woods, then made their way to an old slave cabin. A lady by the name of Aunt T, who was a former Anderson family slave, she took them in. She nursed Anderson's wounded foot and for nearly two months hid and fed Anderson and Ray and kept them posted on the intensity of the search being carried out for them. Soon the two men figured it was best they split up and Ray disappeared. Meanwhile, Anderson's wife Nora was about to give birth to their third child. A child that was conceived actually in the Caldwell County Jail during a conjugal visit Anderson had been allowed to have with his wife. At least that was the story. On August 29, 1885, Anderson held his newborn son, knowing pretty much he'd never help raise him. He would also say goodbye to everybody he knew and everything he loved, his mountain home, his wife, and his children. After that, Anderson just kind of seemed to fall off the face of the earth, or appeared to be that way. The escape of Anderson Ray from the heavily guarded and ultra-secure jail became a sensation throughout North Carolina. The other prisoners ended up being captured and caught. Sheriff Rich advertised an $800 reward for information leading to the arrest of the two of Anderson and Ray. Offering $400 each, including $400 for each of the other prisoners that had escaped who were captured. As another big jailbreak, suspicion, like I said, fell on the sheriff and the jailer. Rich and Henderson, after a time, were actually arrested on charges of having been bribed to allow the prisoners to escape. A grand jury found enough probable cause and issued a true bill setting them up for a trial and they did go to trial while the sheriff was still the sheriff. This was not surprising. Successful jailbreaks relied on the assistance of others. No one was more familiar really with the Pumpkin County Jail and how to get in and out than Sheriff Rich and Deputy Henderson. No one would have been in a better position to help them. Both men were put on trial separately and trial in front of a jury of 12. After hearing all the information and evidence, the jury acquitted the two men and they went back to doing what it was they were doing. Now, during the 16 months that Anderson Ray had been confined and moved about to different jails and locations, there had been threats uh, to lynch them and counter threats to break them out. And this is one of the reasons that they, that being one of the reasons that they were moved so often. Judges and sheriffs dealing with it too requested many times that state troops or militiamen come to guard the convicts in jail and, and act as backup whenever they were transferred for court or to other county jails. And yet, despite all the extra security, Anderson Ray still managed to break free. 
Wrightsville Avery Anderson and Edward W. Ray disappeared from Buncombe County and allegedly were never seen again in western North Carolina, or so they say. Although theirs was not the first nor the last escape from Buncombe County, their jailbreak likely inspired quite a few future escapes from what was then considered the most secure jail in the region. After their disappearances, uh, media reported that Anderson and Ray had fled to Honduras. Other stories said they were living in England. One newspaper reported that Ray had been killed in New Mexico by cowboys with whom he got into trouble with and that Anderson, nothing had ever been heard of him since. When the historical record falls short, some stories leave us with only speculation and no real true ending. Or does it? Next week, I'm going to give you part two of the Buncombe County Bastille breakout. And I've actually found out what happened to our two main escape prisoners, Ray and Anderson. And it is an absolutely fascinating story how they did what they did, where they went, and what they became. Incredibly interesting. I hope you come back and listen to that. We'll have that next Saturday for you at 7 o'clock Eastern Standard Time here on Felon File. So be sure to come back and take a listen. And in the meantime, you have the opportunity do something nice for somebody. It's really the right thing to do. And you can also check out our website, scottlunsfordauthor.com, to check out some of my books. And hopefully we're going to have a new book, Blood on the Blue Ridge, coming out for you soon. Nonfiction work. I hope that you'll enjoy. A friend of mine, Alfred Dockery, and myself have been working very diligently on this. And I believe you'll enjoy it. Also, you can go to our website, felonfile.com, and find out a little bit more about various things that are going on in the felon file world, and uh, we'd love to hear from you, too. You can contact us through those websites. All right, Victoria, close us out. We appreciate you, and y'all come back and listen. Bye, y'all. This has been a Shade of Blue story on the Felon File podcast. With your host, Scott Lunsford, retired police detective, author, and researcher. Go to felonfile.com for more information. This is Victoria, your producer.